Father, we come to you now asking once more that you would draw near to us uh, through the work of your Spirit as we come to study your Word. Father, would your Spirit be operative this morning? Take your Word, apply it to us, to our hearts deeply, and Father, that we might be changed as a result of our time together looking at your Holy Word. Father, we pray that all of us here, believers, unbelievers, Father, that we would all know Christ more as a result of this study and that we would be more earnest to follow you. Would you save some and bring your people, Lord, to repentance if necessary? And Father, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as you preach through books of the Bible chapter by chapter, uh, you come to certain sections that stand out sort of like spiritual inventories or opportunities for you to check your soul against that text. This week, next week, the next week, there are going to be a number of theological realities from these passages that are a little difficult, a little heavy, Uh, but will be an opportunity for God's people, I think, to examine our hearts and to ask ourselves, why do I follow Jesus? What is it about Him that I'm attracted to? So I hope over the next couple of weeks we'll be able to all grow and be challenged and faithfully respond to the Word of God. But that's my preface here, so let me get back to my normal um, sort of introduction. Please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark. Some of you were shocked. I saw it on your face when I didn't say turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. But go ahead and turn there, Mark chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at the last part of the Gospel of Mark, verses 53 to 56. It's really a summary of Jesus' time in Galilee. And I preface that with my introduction here with just saying this is an opportunity for us to do a spiritual inventory I think that'll make sense as we work our way through, and especially as we come to the conclusion of the sermon. But for over a year now, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, fast-paced account of the life of our Lord, and we come this morning to the end of chapter 6 and to the end of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. This is it. Up till now, our Lord has been in Galilee, and after this, He is going to transition uh, to, really, to the regions around Galilee, and we'll see that starting in chapter 7, verse 24. But let me give you a little bit of an overview. If you take the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you harmonize them or put them together, you realize that the ministry of Jesus lasted for a little over three years. The first year of His ministry, He spent between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. The second year, Jesus ministered almost exclusively in the region of Galilee. And then in his third year, where we're about to transition in Mark 7, verse 24, Jesus finally leaves Galilee to go into the surrounding regions of Tyre, Sidon in the west, Perea in the east, and then down into Judea. And then ultimately, his ministry and his life culminate in his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. But if you harmonize the Gospels, you see, really, it's just a little over three years of public 
ministry. That's interesting, but what's even more interesting to me is that two-thirds of that time, about, were spent in one region that was a little smaller than the size of DFW. In Galilee, two-thirds of Jesus' ministry happened in Galilee. He had made, remember, Capernaum on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, his headquarters. And from there, he has staged this profound ministry to the people of Galilee. Why were they chosen to receive so much of the Lord's time, attention, and care? We don't know. Uh, There's speculation as to why, but we don't really know. But for whatever reason, it's difficult to imagine a people like the Galilean people who were more privileged in the first century. No one even came close to the level of exposure to Jesus that the Galileans experienced. They got to hear him preach and teach on repeat. This is what he did. He did it so much that oftentimes he didn't even have time to eat. This is what he was doing. The people of Galilee heard him. They witnessed countless signs and wonders that came from his hands to authenticate his message and his identification as the Messiah. But what we see in our text this morning is that that despite all of their exposure to Jesus, despite their enthusiasm about His ministry, despite the fact that they had even benefited from His power and presence, they still came short of saving faith. Very sobering reality. Now, you don't see that immediately in our text, but when you look at the parallel accounts of this text, it's very clear that the people of Galilee were a people with high maximum exposure to Jesus, but with no sincere, authentic faith. So while in one sense this passage we'll look at will show us the sort of culminative, accumulative rather, effect of Jesus' ministry to the people there, the impact that He had on them, His popularity, all of that's tied up in verses 53 to 56. But most sobering of all, is that we see that there is a way that fallen human nature can come to Jesus simply to receive earthly benefits from Him. And the scary part about that is it often looks just like the real thing. So I don't want to talk you out of your salvation this morning. That's not my goal. But I do want you to be aware that there is a high... Well, there is a... a, a, tendency and an ability in fallen human flesh to come to church, to go to small group, to be around Christians, and even actually like being around Christians, yet to still not be following Jesus out of sincere love. And that's, I think, what we see here in Galilee. These people seem to be following Jesus and coming to Him for all the wrong reasons. And they fall short of sincere faith. And what I want to do this morning is just walk through this passage with you, point out some features, and hopefully as I do, you will make a lot of connections. I had a lot of application that I wanted to share with you, but I had to cut a lot of it because of my sermon was way too long. So I had to shorten it. But anyway, I hope it's helpful to you as we look at the Galileans and see, wow, that's what they were doing. Am I doing that? 
Let me check my soul. Okay, so why don't you stand with me and we'll read Mark 6, beginning in verse 53. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about that whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. You may be seated. In one sense, the text itself seems positive. They're bringing people. It seems great. They're excited about Jesus. Lots of enthusiasm. That's all great. Jesus compassionately heals all of them that touch him. But once we scratch a little deeper, as we'll see, there's something missing in the Galilean response to Jesus. And hopefully as we work through it, it'll be clear to you. But to help us work through it, I've divided the sermon, this text up, into three points. First, the people's recognition of Jesus, verses 53 to 54. Then their response to Jesus, verses 55 to 56. And then lastly, in verse 56, we see their reward. And that's a little bit of a play on words. They get a healing but then they also get something negative, and we'll see that. Let's start with verse 53 and 54. The people's recognition of Jesus. Look at verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. Now remember, initially, these men had been on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and the Lord had given them instructions to go up the coastline to Bethsaida in the northeast when a storm blew in and blew them off course, leaving them stranded in the middle of the lake, which seemed, from a human perspective, very unfortunate. But we looked a few weeks ago that it was not unfortunate at all. It was perfectly staged, perfectly executed from the Lord. The Lord, by His sovereignty, had decreed a storm, and He had ordained that through that storm, He would test His twelve disciples and reveal the unbelief that was in their hearts, and also reveal His identity to them in a further way. There were three miracles we saw on the sea that night. Jesus walking on water in front of them. Job 9.8 says that God alone treads on the surface of the sea. That would have confirmed Jesus' identity as God incarnate. Also, when Jesus stepped out of the boat, or stepped into the boat, rather, remember, all of a sudden, what happened to the storm? Perfect peace, quiet, it ceased. He didn't have to say anything. He just stepped in and boom, it's over. That's power. And even further, we're, we saw from John 6 that there was a third miracle that happened that night that proved Jesus' divinity. As soon as Jesus stepped into the boat, according to John 6, the boat was immediately transported to the place Jesus wanted it to be, which is amazing. And that's where we pick up in verse 53. After the boat has been teleported, transported, transferred, use your word, pick your word. Verse 53 says, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. Now, the name Gennesaret usually refers to this 
three and a half mile long plain that's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. It's three and a half miles long, a mile and a half deep. It goes inland a mile and a half. So it was a small region inside the larger region of Galilee, densely populated, boxed in by mountains on the west and the Sea of Galilee on the east. And it was known, well known, for its beautiful landscape, fertile soil. In fact, the name Gennesaret literally means garden of riches. You can imagine how beautiful this area was. And so this is where the boat comes to shore, the garden of riches. One more feature about this region that's helpful as we think about this passage is that because of its fertility and because of its agriculture and because of the business that came in through this little region, there was a main highway that ran through it and connected it to other small towns and villages nearby where food and goods could be traded. Now that's significant because if you think about what we just read, these people are scurrying all over the place bringing sick people to Jesus. How were they doing that? Well, they were just on the highway. It was a uniquely located place for this to happen. One other point about Gennesaret was that there was a fortified city within the region also called Gennesaret. It's a city of about 40,000 people just southwest of Capernaum. So Mark could be talking about this larger region of Gennesaret or he could be talking about a city. We're not really sure, but we do know that whatever is happening is happening on the west side of the Sea of Galilee in one of the busiest places in the region of Galilee itself with a major highway, and also probably a port. Why do I say that? Look at verse 53. When it says, when they came into this area, they moored to shore. It's an interesting word that means to bring a ship into harbor. So here they are coming into harbor. And as soon as the twelve get out of the boat, probably happy as you would be to be back on land, after a storm in a little cooler lid in the middle of the lake. They get to the port. They get out. And verse 57 says, Immediately the people recognized him. Notice that it's not them. Thirteen people get out of the boat. But the people recognize him. They understand who the main attraction is. The twelve apostles had been given some authority to do some miracles and wonderful things, signs and wonders. But they weren't really interested in that moment in those guys. They had their eyes on Him, on Jesus. And so they recognized Him and they go to Him. Probably also they were on the port, on the dock there, and these folks would have seen this terrible storm out in the middle of the lake. And they would have thought, yeah, everyone out there, whoever's out there, is gone. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes in with 12 of his men who look like they've seen a ghost. And Jesus himself, probably leading the pack, confident, cool, collected. Like, what are you guys worried about? I mean, what's going on? You look nervous. You look worried. Haven't you seen a man walk on water before? <laughs> you know. So here they are. They get to the port. The people come. They recognize Jesus. And they come to him. And at this point, Jesus has been in Galilee for almost two years. So we've, in a year of time, we've looked at about two years of the ministry of Jesus that Mark thinks we ought to see here. Right? Inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course. 
So we've got six chapters of two years of the life of Jesus. Clearly, we just hit the high points. But here we are, two years, Jesus has been in Galilee and around Galilee. And honestly, at this point, or clearly really, he's the most popular figure in town. And, and really not just town, but in all of Palestine. In Mark 1.28, we were told the news, that the news about Jesus was spreading everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And then in verse 32 of chapter 1, we're told that the whole city of Capernaum had gathered at the door of Peter's house to be healed. There's lots of people knowing about Jesus. And then by the time we get to Mark 1.45, so we're still in chapter 1, the fame of Jesus has spread to such an extent, Mark writes, that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. And so the fame of Jesus was advancing and spreading, and that's just the end of chapter 1. So then we come to, the, to chapter 3, we're told again, Mark sort of dips in and says, I just want you to see how popular Jesus was at this point. Mark 3, verse 7, he says, A great multitude from Galilee followed him. And notice where else they were coming from. Also from Judea, which was down in the south, and from Jerusalem, the capital, and from Idumea, that's 120 miles from Capernaum, six days' journey to get there. And they were also coming from beyond the Jordan, which is east of the Jordan River, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon on the Mediterranean coast. And then Mark says again, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing. So my point here is saying, look, the, the popularity and the fame of Jesus had spread to such an extent that he was the most popular figure, of course, in Galilee, but perhaps in the entire area. And by the time we get to chapter 6 then, his fame, well, he's renowned. Everyone knows him. Everyone recognizes him. Look at how they respond to him in chapter 6 and verse 55. They see him. They recognize him. And then in a frenzy, they run about that whole country. That's one thing I should say before I move on from them recognizing him. They recognized him, which was much more than who? Who didn't recognize him? <laughs> yeah, they thought he, the disciples thought he was a ghost. But here, these people in Galilee at least recognized Jesus. I think Mark is just trying, again, to just poke those guys, poke the disciples. And remember, Peter is behind the account of Mark, most likely. This is Peter's humility as well. So it's not just Mark trying to poke at disciples. This is Peter as well. Look, we were, we were boneheads. We messed up. We blew it all the time. Look how gracious and patient Jesus was with us. That's kind of the idea. So the crowds recognize Jesus. Well done for them. And then in verse 55, they run around that whole country and begin to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Now, I'm saying they're doing this in a frenzy because that's the picture that Mark is trying to paint for us. He said that they ran about, at least in the NASB, where there's peritreco, the word is run, 
around, literally. It's the word treko, which is run, with the preposition around attached to it. So literally the idea is that they were running around in rapid motion here and there, all over the place, up and down highways, out into the hedges, bringing in people for Jesus to heal. So think commotion, frenzy, something like chaos. And it wasn't just restricted to the beach side either. It says, the text says, they were running around where? That whole region or that whole country, probably referring to that region of Gennesaret and beyond. So clearly the Galileans then recognized that Jesus was no ordinary man. They understood that he was a man with power and authority to raise the dead, restore the lives of those who were sick. Literally, restore the lives of those who had it bad. That's the literal translation of verse 55. The word sick there, well, the sick are those who literally have it bad. You ever bring anyone who had it bad? Let's take you to Jesus. Jesus will fix you. So whatever we say about the crowd in the rest of this sermon, moving forward, one good thing that we see from them is that they had enough compassion at least to say, oh, you have a need? Let me take you to Jesus. He'll fix you. He can take care of that. Maybe that's their loved ones that they were bringing. Whatever it was, they were driven at least by compassion at some level to bring people to be healed by Jesus. Verse 56 says this, Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. Verse 55 says this, They were running around, carrying here and there, those who were sick, to the places where they heard he was. Verse 56 is kind of a larger synopsis of what they were doing in verse 55. And it's actually an ongoing kind of idea. It wasn't just a one-time thing that they did. This is language here is the imperfect tense. Remember, it's something that happens in the past, but it's ongoing. So it's something that as soon as Jesus landed, these people were spreading, bringing the sick in, and they were doing it over and over. So think of it like this. They land at the harbor. Where are they going? We don't know. They may be going north, south, inland. But wherever they're going, as Jesus is making his way up the highway through these villages and towns, at every point along the way, the people were somehow communicating to one another, he's coming your way, he's coming your way, and bringing in the sick to be healed by Jesus. Verse 56, again, is just a repetition of what we see in verse 55. But it makes the point, again, that it's something that was happening in an ongoing way. This is what they did. This was sort of the characteristic response of the Galileans to two years of Jesus' ministry. And actually, it, Mark is detailed enough here that he tells us that it was like they were looking at the trajectory where Jesus was headed, and they were trying to sort of head him off, and they would just drop people in the marketplaces, verse 56, so that perhaps as Jesus came by, he might touch them and they would be healed. Now, it's an extraordinary scene. You can imagine how chaotic it would have been. You've got sick, lame people all over the place. And Jesus is just walking down the road and people are sort of being thrown in front of him to just 
you know, to heal. And they all get healed. Into verse 56. As many as touched it were being cured. But I want you to notice something in verse 56. When Jesus did arrive at these places, so they were bringing their sick. When he finally arrived there, what were they asking him? Were they wanting to see Jesus to hear more about the gospel? Were they wanting their questions answered about how he really is the Messiah? Some of the complexities of prophecy from the Old Testament. Were they wanting their sins forgiven? Not at all. When they finally encountered Jesus, they would over and over again, that's the emphasis, verse 56, implore Him that they might just touch the fringe of His cloak. That was their concern. Just touch the fringe, maybe the tassel from His garment. That's what they wanted to do. Just touch his garment. Now, it's hard to see this in English, but in the Greek, that whole phrase, imploring him that they might touch the fringe of his garment or cloak, is emphatic. You can kind of see it in the language. They might just touch. They might just touch. The ESV says they might touch even the fringe of his garment. The translators are trying to capture the emphasis here that what the crowds are wanting to do is just touch his garment. Look, we don't want a lot of your time. If we don't need a lot of your time. We don't need to hear what you have to say. You've got a long sermon. That's okay. Um, we, we, all we want to do is just touch that tassel. Can, we, can John touch your tassel? That's what we want to do. We just want to touch the tassel, get the healing, and get on our way. That's the idea. For them, the logic was something like this. We know Jesus... We've heard about him. He's a miracle worker. I need a miracle, and I'm willing to do whatever I need to do to get my miracle, be healed, and get on with my best life now. So they were begging just to touch the fringe of his cloak. But why the fringe? Why the fringe of his cloak? Why would they want to do that? Was there something miraculous about the clothing of Jesus? Something magical? Not at all. Most likely, they're specifically asking to touch the fringe of his garment because they had heard about a woman with an issue of blood who all she did was touch the fringe of a garment and she got healed. Mark 5. This woman, though, came boldly to Jesus, full of genuine faith and desperation, reached out to Jesus to touch him, and Jesus, remember, looked at her and he healed her and then pointed her out as an example of authentic faith. But what seems to be happening here is that the crowds are trying to imitate the woman's method without possessing the woman's faith. I think that'll become clear as we look at Jesus' rebuke of them from Matthew 11 here in a few minutes. But for now... Just know that there is evidence from the ancient world where among pagan healers and healing shrines that whenever someone was supposedly healed in a particular way or at a particular place, others would try to get healing by the same method. Kind of like you find an allergy medicine that works for you. What is it? Tell me. I have allergies. That's why that's an illustration for me. 
Um, here, oh, you got healed? She got healed? All she did was touch the fringe of the garment? Go get Bill and John and Frank and we'll come. We'll get them all healed. We just want to touch the fringe of your garment, they say. So they're coming to Jesus then, primarily and exclusively in order to just touch the fringe of his garment and get their healing. And so we see here that as Mark is summarizing Jesus' two-year investment in Galilee, the people seem to have largely not responded in faith to follow Jesus for who He is, but they recognize Jesus as a miracle man and want their healing. This is the culmination of years in Galilee and all of the popularity revolved not so much around God finally sending the Savior into the world, but by an opportunity for me to get my immediate needs met. No care for the spiritual, only physical, earthbound needs met. So anyway, as I look at this, that seems to be what the frenzy is about. Everyone trying to get their miracle from the miracle man. Now, was that wrong of them? You're sick, you've got a chronic illness, Jesus comes in. Is it wrong of you to ask to touch the fringe of his garment? I don't think so. I don't know what you would say, but I don't think so. I don't think that's the issue. The issue is not that they wanted to be healed physically. The issue is that that's all they wanted. That's it. Jesus, we just want you because we know you can heal people. I need a healing. Will you just touch, let me touch the fringe of your garment? I won't bother you anymore. I'll go on my way. They were only coming to Jesus for that. And they were so enthralled with the miracle working power of Jesus that they missed his message altogether. And Jesus was certainly aware of this. He was certainly aware that the miracles that he did would easily sort of in the minds of fallen human people and sinful natures, would become the main thing. And he addressed this issue. If you flip back to Mark chapter 1, we talked about this when we were there. Mark chapter 1, if you look at verse 37, these great crowds had come to hear Jesus, and they were coming to him primarily because they wanted to get healing. All the city had gathered together to be healed. They were coming to get healing. And Jesus had snuck away from the crowds, and he was praying by himself in a secluded area. And you remember that the disciples come to him. And really, the crowd seemed to be pressuring the disciples. Hey, go find Jesus. We're here to get our healing. And so the disciples come to Jesus, sort of being pushed by the crowds, it seemed. And they come to Jesus in verse 37, and they say, everyone is looking for you. It's not just, they're not just transferring some data here. And it seems to be that they're a little bit puzzled and fresh what are you doing out here jesus are you praying out here look all these people need you they're here to be healed and jesus response his response to them is really definitive to his ministry altogether look at verse 38 everybody wants to be healed and so verse 38 he said to them get the tent ready and we'll have a healing crusade let's do it let me showcase what I can do. Let me put on a huge ministry here. Not at all. 
What does Jesus say, verse 38? And he said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. That's profound. It's profound. In other words, he didn't come to heal. Jesus didn't come to earth to heal sick people. He did because he was very compassionate, which is an understatement. But he came here to preach the gospel of the kingdom, and that's what he said. That was his focus. He was a preacher of the gospels. Then you say, well, why did he do miracles? Right? If he was a preacher, then why didn't he just stick to preaching and let other people do the miracles? Well, I, I've said this over and over again, but it bears repeating. The miracles and the signs and the wonders that Jesus performed were to confirm him and authenticate him as the true son of God the prophet greater than Moses, the promised Messiah. That's what miracles will do, were, do, will, were for, and that's what they did. They confirmed that great reality. And that really, if we look at your Bible, has always been the function of signs, wonders, and miracles. We often think about Scripture as if miracles are happening just all the time. But in reality, there are only three places in the Bible where we see miracles happening primarily from the hands of men. The first time we see this is through Moses. Remember, God calls Moses to go to redeem, to be the vehicle of redemption for his people in Israel, or in Egypt, rather. And in in Exodus chapter 4, why don't you just turn there? Flip back to Exodus chapter 4. So Moses is called of God to go be the agent of redemption, to defy the most powerful man in the world at that point, Pharaoh. And we give Moses a hard time sometimes for being a little bit hesitant. But I would venture to guess you would be hesitant as well, my friend. (laughs) It's a big task. None of us would feel adequate. But the Lord gets Moses in check, reminds him who he is, reminds him his name, gives him the mission, and then Exodus chapter 4, verse 1, Moses asked God a crucial question. Moses said, Exodus 4, verse 1, what if they, Israel, will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. Do you get his question? I mean, how how are they going to know that I'm being sent by you as the prophet? How is that going to happen? Verse 2, this is so important. The Lord responds to him and says, here's how. Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it. That took a lot of courage. And it became a staff in his hand. Verse 5, this is so key. The Lord said that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Why am I giving you this power, Moses? So that they will know that I am sending you. Verse 6, the Lord furthermore said, now put your hand in your bosom 
So he put his hand into his bosom, then he took it out, and behold, his hand was leprous like snow. That's a miracle. It's not normal. It's not natural. Verse 7, then he said, put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom, he took it out. Behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then verse 8, if they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. What are the signs for Moses? What were the signs for that God gave to Moses? So that they would recognize, believe that you were a prophet sent to them for their good. That was the purpose of signs, miracles, wonders. It, it still is. Signs, wonders, miracles. We see them with Moses. We see them with Elijah. And Elijah in the Old Testament, it's the second time we see them. God used these miracles to authenticate Elijah and Elijah as prophets and agents of divine revelation. That's two. And then the third period where we see signs and wonders and miracles to authenticate divine revelation is when? In the Gospels with our Lord. In this passage, and passages all throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When Jesus came onto the scene, he was able to work miracles, do wonders, in order to authenticate himself as the prophet greater than Moses, certainly, but also as the promised Messiah and King of Israel, an agent of revelation. We read in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the Son has explained him, or exegeted him, or revealed him. Jesus was a miracle man, not because he was a miracle man. He was a miracle man because the miracles were given to confirm, authenticate the message of the gospel he preached and authenticate himself as the Messiah. Now, we see something in Moses' day. We see this in the early church. And I would say we even see this today, for sure. This strong tendency to look at the miracles, the signs and the wonders that sort of revolved around these prophets that were giving new revelation, and to get enamored with them, and to miss the message and the messenger that those miracles, signs, and wonders were there to authenticate. And so there's a strong, strong rather, tendency for people to zero in on the benefits that surround the messenger of God and lose sight of the purpose of miracles altogether. So rather than going through the miracles to the message that the miracles confirmed, people tend to get caught up with the, the miracles themselves and push the message to the side. Now, I, the reason I told you I had to cut a lot of stuff was because everything I cut was basically all I wanted to say about that reality. I don't have time to trace this error of exalting miracle signs, wonders um, above the message of the gospel. But we could do that if we looked at the gospel, if we looked at the book of Exodus, if we looked at the book of Acts. We could come into First Corinthians and see where this is exactly what was happening in Corinth. The church there was exalting these sign gifts, prophetic words speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, these gifts that were meant to confirm divine revelation connected to the apostles. What happened is, just like the people of Galilee, the early 
church in Corinth exalted those gifts to such an extent that the church was divided and they were about to lose the message of the gospel. This has always been the case. People latch on to things they think are the main things and they're not the main thing at all. Which I think, back in Mark chapter 6, I just kept myself from going on a big rabbit trail. I don't know if you see the dilemma in my mind. (laughs) I love you, and I I wanted to not go on that rabbit trail. Um, Back in Mark chapter 6, this is what we see these people doing, and I want to show you that. They had seen Jesus cast out demons, raise the dead, heal multitudes, provide food out of nothing. And somehow, at the conclusion of two years of ministry, they were flocking to Jesus just to get their miracle. And by all appearances, I think they exalted the miraculous above the message and the messenger. But notice, notice how the Lord responds. Verse 56. And as many as touched it, were being cured. Regardless of where they stood and their reasoning for pursuing Jesus, regardless of why they were coming, whether it was in genuine faith or not, as many as touched it were being cured. Now that's amazing because it underscores the power of Jesus Christ. But it's also amazing because it shows us how compassionate he was. He looked at these people who were being brought to him, and he didn't say, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, you don't have enough faith. No. You can touch, but you're not going to be healed. Oh, you don't have faith over there, so I can't heal you. Oh, you don't have faith, I can't heal you. Now, that's directly contradictory to this mess we see out here in the charismatic world, right, of healing people. Oh, sorry, I couldn't heal you of your cancer because you lack faith. <laughs> that is not our Lord's way. For one, that's, they're, they're sort of wanting to pull into the present some elements of redemptive history in the past. Now is not the time. We don't see the Spirit operating in this way. The Spirit operates in different ways at this point in redemptive history. Someday the Lord will have prophets again. When, during the tribulation period, during the, the, the time when God is pouring out His wrath, mercifully God will send prophets to preach. There will be miracles that confirm them. We see that in the book of Revelation. But right now is not the time for that. Now is the time to make disciples of the nations. Now is the time where the Spirit of God has promised to take His Word and transform the hearts of people. So there's no no mention here of, oh, you're not healed because you don't have faith. No, as many as touched it were healed. As many as touched it. Highlighting, underscoring, elevating the mercy, the compassion of Jesus. But tragically, that was the end of their reward. They got physical healing. Great. You can walk. Praise God. But that was it for them. Because after they received their miracles, for the most part, we know that they did not repent. Now, I want to show you that. And some of you are like, I don't see that in the text. He's been talking about this, but I don't see it. Turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 11. And I want to show you why I'm taking this view on the Galileans. They get their miracle, I think, just merely out of the compassion of Christ's heart. And then they have their needs met, and so then they go on their way. 
Matthew 11, as Jesus is drawing his ministry in Galilee to a close, Matthew's account, in Matthew 11, 20, verse, Matthew 11, verse 20, we're told this. Verse 20, that Jesus began to do what? Denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done. Why? Because they did not repent. Okay, well, that's a little general. Could be any city. Okay. Look at verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin, city just north of Capernaum in Galilee. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Where did we where have we heard the term Bethsaida, the name Bethsaida recently? Well, in Mark chapter 6. Right, this is most likely where the multiplication of the loaves happened. For, he says, verse 21, if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Implication, you have not repented. Yeah, you're getting your miracle. But you're not repenting. Verse 22, nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more toler- tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Now that tells us that on the whole, right, he's, he's denouncing whole cities, meaning that, of course, there might have been people, well, there were people within the cities who believed. But as a whole, the large crowds that were coming were not coming in sincere faith. At least the ones coming from Chorazin and Bethsaida. They were coming to get the benefits of healing. And of course, the Lord graciously granted those to them, but they failed to go through those blessings to the Lord and to follow Him sincerely. They were just hanging around for the benefits of following Christ. And so Jesus says their judgment will be higher than cities like Tyre and Sidon, Gentile cities who saw little of Jesus' ministry. He's about to go. We're going to see Him go to Tyre and Sidon here in a, little, in a couple chapters. Um, but they saw nothing like the miracles that the people in Chorazin and Bethsaida saw. And he says to them, Woe to you, which is referring to the judgment of hell. Woe is a way of announcing disaster and terror. It speaks of severe, harsh judgment. But then Jesus goes on back in Matthew 11, verse 23. And you, where? Matthew eleven twenty three. Capernaum, the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. Surely they have a special place in this whole thing. Surely God looked at them and said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have my son headquarter his ministries in, ministry in Capernaum so that, because they are so blessed and so special. Right? Surely they're going to have a special place here because they were the city that housed the ministry of our Lord. But notice verse 23, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Sobering, sobering words. Of all the cities that Jesus entered, Capernaum, Jesus says, would receive the greatest condemnation. Not because of its wicked sexual sins like Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Wiped off the planet. 
because of their heinous sin, primarily sexual sin. And the Lord said, I'm done. You're done. Judged. These people in Capernaum are not denounced and judged because their sin was more explicit, necessarily. But actually, it was very implicit. They seemed to just be apathetic about the man in their midst. Oh, they wanted miracles. But they could live without this whole following Him and obeying His commands. Jesus said that if the wicked people of Sodom and Gomorrah had seen the signs and miracles that Jesus did in Capernaum, those wicked people would have repented and trusted the Lord and their city would still be standing to this day. Amazing. And in verse 24, Nevertheless, Jesus said, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. It will be more tolerable for them than for you. It tells a couple things. One, there are severities and levels of punishments in hell. It's not a, a unilateral punishment. If Jesus says, some people will have it a little more, more tolerable in hell than you will, the implication there is that some will be judged stricter, harsher. And why? Why is it that Capernaum gets greater judgment in hell than Sodom and Gomorrah? It's this. Because judgment is proportionate to the amount of light received. Judgment is proportionate to the amount of light received. Now, that's sobering. We are a people who have a lot of light. Lots of light. And in this case, the amount of light that Capernaum had received was astronomically more than the people of Sodom. Sodom had some light. Second Peter tells us that Lot was there. He was a righteous man. You know, you read the Old Testament and you think, what is this guy is not righteous. But then you get in Second Peter and the Lord says, no, he was righteous. His soul was in tor- uh, torment day after day. Why? Well, because he was living against his conscience in a wicked city. And he was enjoying these things and his conscience, because he was the Lord's, was accusing him and making him miserable. And the Lord says, even that was a little bit of salt and light in the city of Sodom. Even Lot's ministry and presence. But they saw nothing like what the people of Capernaum saw. The Galileans had been exposed to the Son of God incarnate. In God, God's providence, they were alive when the Messiah walked the earth. They got to see Him in action and hear Him teach for nearly two years, yet they came short of saving faith. Now, is it possible for you and I or any of you here today to have the same experience? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is possible for you to come to church 
to be exposed to the brightest light and yet still not truly know the Lord. Let me give you two reasons why they came short of faith, and I think that'll be helpful for us. Number one, they came short of true faith. Now, let me back up here and say one thing. You could say they came short of true faith because the Lord didn't give them true faith. Amen. Right? That's the vertical perspective. But we're looking at things at this point from the horizontal perspective here. Why did they come short of true faith? Well, number one, because they were so enamored with the extravagant, so in awe of the miraculous, that they failed to go beyond it to what the miraculous confirmed, the man Christ Jesus. That's one of my big concerns with the charismatic movement at large. You can be so enamored with these sign gifts and these miraculous things that you lose the message. I'll tell you a little story, and this is just an anecdote, but uh, when I was in college, um, I was involved with a ministry where we discipled a number of young guys who were going to a secular university. Uh, they were there, faithful guys, grew up in healthy churches, and they had all of a sudden owned their faith, and they were hungry for the Lord. They're the kind of guys you want to disciple, right? They're just hungry, eager, uh, but they're also very impressionable. And unbeknownst to me, they got involved with a college ministry called Chi Alpha, uh, which I think is an Assemblies of God ministry, uh, which is very charismatic. And these guys got involved with this Chi Alpha ministry. And we were meeting, and we had a very strict agenda we were sort of working through every week. And in one week, they both sat down with me, and they said, we want to talk to you about the gift of tongues. And I said, okay, let's talk about it. And they sort of laid in to the argument that they had been getting from their folks in Chi Alpha. And I heard them out, and it was much more than just a, I'm curious about this on like an intellectual level. What had happened was their friends in this charismatic ministry had come to them and said, hey, look, you think you're a Christian, but you're not speaking in tongues. And we don't, we're not sure that you can even really be a Christian if you're speaking in tongues. And these guys had a sensitive conscience, and now they're in a dilemma. What do we do? They're telling us we need to speak in tongues. And by the way, these guys would say, look, we're coaching them and saying, look, all you have to do is say banana really fast, say it really, really fast, and then sort of get mindless, stop thinking, and say banana really fast, and then that will sort of help you learn how to speak in tongues. Now, there is a world of issue wrong with that. And again, I'm trying to stay off of rabbit trails here. Um, we can talk about that if, you're, if that's something where you, you know, where you are. This is everywhere. It's epidemic, in, especially in the Metroplex. So I'm happy to visit with you and talk with you about these issues. But what, I, what struck me the most and pained me the most about these two guys was they were being pulled away to this. And as they were being pulled away, you could see their love to Christ waning. You could see their excitement about gifts Oh, it was through the roof. But where was Christ? They were excited about the miracle. They were excited about the sign, the wonderful, ecstatic gift. And somehow Christ was the loser there. That's my fear with the charismatic movement, among a hundred other things. But that's one issue here with Capernaum in Galilee. Number two, why did they fail? Why did they come short of true faith? Well, they got enamored with the extravagant, enamored with supernatural things, and failed to love Jesus and his message. Number two, 
they failed to realize that the blessings and mercies they had received were gifts from God designed to drive them to repentance. The miracle they received at touching the fringe of the garment, that was not a confirmation of them. That was a grace gift. That was compassion, unearned. They took that and said, oh, I must be doing something right. He healed me. I must have true faith. And because they missed the lessons of Romans 2, 4, the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. They got their miracle and moved on. And what that does to me, as far as concerns and pastoral considerations, is I don't think as many of us are so caught up in the sign gifts and the miraculous that we miss our Lord and His message. But there is a way that we are so steeped in blessing. Such beneficiaries of light upon light that we can be tempted to think that because we have it so well that everything must be okay. But that is not it. Think about the disciples. Think about the apostles. Think about Paul. Did he have it so well? Life was so comfortable. He was so blessed with material prosperity and ease in life that he just sort of sang through life and said, God must be happy with me. No, he was, he was the happiest man on the planet, but he was probably the most physically endangered. So there's a danger of, of not going through the blessings you have received. Think about them. Not going through them to the Lord who compassionately gives them. There's a way that you can look at your life and say, yeah, it's pretty good. I must have arrived. And, and miss that, no, it's God's kindness to you. That gift is not because you're so great, but it's a, a love gift, a gracious gift of God to you so that you will say, why would God be so gracious to me? And then you're driven to love Him and follow Him more earnestly. So my exhortation to you is don't stop just because you've been blessed with common grace blessings. You're supposed to go through those to the Lord. Let me give you one other thing here. There's a way that you can come to church every week, enjoy the blessings of Christ's body, go to small groups, even teach and preach, I think. Yet you do it for all the wrong reasons. You come, you have come to Jesus for the physical horizontal benefits, not because you love the Lord. You love the benefits of being around Jesus and being around the Lord's people. You can't be around the physical Jesus. He's in heaven. His spirit is among us, but his body is us. You can enjoy being around the Lord's people, but still not have real love for Jesus. Hebrews 6 tells us that this is a very serious danger. That you can come to church every week, enjoy the light of Christianity, benefit, benefit from the Holy Spirit's gifts to the church, but still not repent and still lack true faith. And by that, of course, I don't mean that you can have the Holy Spirit indwelling you by enjoy the Holy Spirit's gifts. I mean, you can. every Christian here has been endowed by God with spiritual gifts. 
and we, we employ them. This is why Calvary is such a wonderful place. We employ them to, 1 Corinthians 12, serve and build up one another. That is a wonderful place to be. And there's a way that you can come to Jesus just because it's wonderful to be around his people and still lack true faith. There's a way you can come just to be served. Now, we're happy to serve you when you have need. I I don't want to make you afraid to come and say, I need help. But there's a way that you can come to the church, to the body of Christ, just to receive the benefit of their spiritual gifts so that you get the blessing, but you still don't really love Jesus. You have no desire internally to love Him, live for Him, honor Him. You are just like the Galileans who come to Him in order to get your blessing and then live however you want to live this week. And this is such a danger. And all of us, of course, have to be on guard because none of us are above it. So let me just ask you a few questions here as I close to help you sort of examine, analyze your own heart, your own love to our Lord. First, let me ask you this. Do you love Jesus? How do you know if you're coming to Jesus for the wrong reasons? If you don't love him, you're coming to Jesus for the wrong reasons. Two, are you following him just for what you can get from him? Friendship, socialization for your children, friends. Do you seek him in life and in prayer? When was the last time you sacrificed for the Lord? Do you spend your money for him? If we were to audit your checkbook, how much of that goes to serving the Lord? That's not an appeal to you for money. It's an appeal to you to use your finances for God's glory because where you put those, you can usually draw a line from where you spend your money to what you really worship. Do you sacrifice for Jesus? Do you spend your money for Him? Where do you spend your time? Do you spend your time in service to the Lord? You can draw a line from your calendar to what you worship as well. Do you ever talk about Jesus to anyone? And do you trust Him? If you can't answer those questions positively, I would say that you are likely following Jesus for the wrong reasons. Or you are in serious danger and you need help. And we're happy to help you, friend. We are not here because we've got it all together. We do know who does have it all together, and we're happy to help you understand the Word of God. But if you're here and you realize, I have no love to Jesus, I don't want to follow Him, I just love being around you people, Uh, I never pray, I never spend my time for Him, I never sacrifice for Him, I don't spend my money for Him, why would I ever do that? Uh, I never talk about Him, do you think I'm going to do that? Do you trust him? Absolutely not. If that's where you are, you are in danger, friend. You are in serious danger, and we want to see you out of that danger. And that's what we're here for. So, if that's where you are, 
I will be right down here after this service. Come and talk to me. And we want to help you. Reach out to someone beside you. Because now is the time. The Galileans had two years with Jesus. That was their window. And when did Jesus go back to Galilee? It was past. They missed their moment. They missed their time. Do not linger. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to repent. And you could have been a part of this church for 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, and still immediately have recognized, wow, I have been following Jesus just for what I can get from him. But today is the day to repent. Because until you are willing to follow Jesus simply because he is worthy of your life, you're not truly following him. But once you follow him, then that's when life really begins. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we have seen and heard a very sober warning here. And you know that we don't enjoy these kind of sober looks at ourselves, but Father, we know they're for our good. So we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would help us all to examine our hearts, to see whether or not we have followed Jesus for the wrong reasons, Of course, we know the right reason is because he is worthy of it all. Thank you for giving us such a Savior. Father, would you increase our love to him? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.